Um, I'm going to tell you something tonight as I was studying throughout this week, uh, and again, even today, been up here since about, about 4 o'clock or so. Uh, this is just one of those chapters that I shouldn't say, unfortunately, that sounds bad, but I don't know how else to word it. We're going to be stuck here for a little while. Uh, most of the chapters we've been able to get through in one study, and we can, or one, I should say, um, you know, week, one Bible study during that week. This is one of those chapters that there's just so much information. I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to get to the point where it's overkill. Uh, but I have to get the information out that I feel like we need to get out uh, to do the chapter justice. Some of these chapters, we can kind of just roll straight through it, get right through it, and move on. But this is a chapter that there's so much in these 17 verses that I've got to take my time getting through it. Uh, in fact, I had a question from Brother Donald that I'm going to try to uh, address here in just a minute about the discrepancies in days. If you study Daniel uh, and then look at Revelation, there is a, a seeming discrepancy in the number of prophetic days that are mentioned. And we see in our chapters we looked at Sunday night, uh, it talks about 1,260 days. When you get to Daniel... And you find it talks about a different number of days, 1,290 days. So I'm going to try to explain a little bit about that too while we get in this chapter uh, as best as I can anyway without it being overly complicated. Uh, and so I'll, I'll explain that here in just a moment. But before we do anything else, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God's blessing on our Bible study again tonight. Lord, I want to thank you for this time we have to be in your house and for, uh, Lord, the rain that you uh, gave us today, you blessed us with. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you, Lord, for all the, uh, our members that are here with us tonight. I pray a blessing upon each of them. Thank you for their support. Thank you, Lord, for their dedication and their faithfulness. Lord, to be able to come out on a Wednesday night and open up their Bibles and study that, uh, the Scriptures tonight. May you bless them for it, Lord. And I know that everybody can't be here tonight, whether they're working or they're traveling. Or some, Lord, are feeling safer at home. I just pray that you bless them that are at home as well. And, Father, I thank you for those that might be tuning in with us Online, May you bless them and meet their needs. And thank you, Lord, for their support and all the uh, positive feedback I get. Seems like every single week, every single service, uh, you've blessed us with positive feedback and encouraging words. And I thank you for that tonight. Lord, we don't want to take these opportunities for granted. We know, Lord, that they could stop at any moment. Uh, we could be forced back out of our churches. We could have to close down uh, once again. And we just pray that that won't happen. Uh, but no matter what, we just trust you with each and every day and each and every service. Lord, I can't teach tonight without you. I can't uh, bring forth anything that you'd have me to bring forth without your help. I need your Holy Spirit tonight to speak through me and to say the words that you'd have me to say. And Lord, I pray you'd open up our hearts to receive the word of God. And may we grow thereby, Lord, through the sincere milk of the word of God as well as the meat that we have need of as well. Pray that you'd encourage us to these studies and just lift our spirit no matter what we're going through in life. We need that touch. We need that help from you that only you can give. And so we ask that you do that tonight as we pray it in Jesus' name and amen. Well, if you look in chapter number 12, back in verse number 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth, verse 5, a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God that, she, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Well, we talked a lot Sunday night about these first few verses. We looked at how... There's five things in the first few verses. There's a great sign that appears in heaven. Uh, there's the woman. She's appearing there. She's uh, clothed with the sun and the moon's under her feet. She's got a crown on her head. And so the great sign in heaven that's there, the woman, as we said, I believe represents Israel. Uh, we see that from Genesis 37, verse number 9. It's clearly Israel. Uh, and it's also clearly Israel by the following verses in the rest of the chapter. 
the sun is her glory. She is clothed with her glory. Israel's glory uh, is mentioned in this description of the woman here. The moon's under her feet. And that moon is something that may be up to debate, but I believe it represents the church uh, during the tribulation. Although the, the church like you and I tonight are going to be long gone during this time, there are going to be Jewish and Gentile converts and believers during that time. And the church is represented by the moon. Uh, then we see a crown on her head and the 12 stars. And that represents Israel and the restoration of Israel. I'm not going to go back into much uh, discussion about the woman and the different discussions about her and arguments as to who she is. I'm just going to stick with what I said. I believe that this is obviously Israel. It's not the church like some teach. It's not Mary as some have taught. This is uh, uh, Israel and she's bringing forth a child. And so we're going to see that in just a moment. Uh, the woman and the serpent are here in Revelation chapter 12, just as the woman and the serpent are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you look in Genesis chapter 3 tonight, this is called the first messianic promise. Of course, messianic meaning Messiah. So the first prophecy about the coming of the Messiah is found in the first book of the Bible and the, the just first of the of several chapters, chapter 3. And this is after Eve had sinned. This is after Adam had sinned. And God's dealing with the woman. He's dealing with Adam. He's dealing with the serpent in verse 14. He curses the serpent. And of course, we know that the serpent is Satan, just like we see in Revelation chapter 12. That seven-headed dragon is called the serpent. And he said, because thou hast done this, in verse 14, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I'll put enmity, that means they're going to be enemies with one another, between the woman. Now, this isn't just Eve. Uh, this is something prophetic, future, between the woman and between thy seed and her seed. That's prophetic. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, this is talking about Jesus Christ and the battle between Jesus and Satan. And don't think it's, a, it's an even match. It's not even close. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ overcomes the devil without even a, a, a weapon. He don't even need a, a, a fight at all. In fact, when, when it happens over out here, when the devil's finally going to be cast in the lake of fire forever and ever, the Lord does it with just the word of his mouth. He don't even need to, to do anything except to say it, and it's going to be so. But the first messianic prophet, prophecy has to do with the woman and her seed. That's her offspring, and that's something supernatural because a woman doesn't have seed on her own without a man being involved. And so she's going to have a supernatural thing happen. That's, that's what happened with Mary. Mary conceived without a man being involved. And the offspring, which we know is Jesus Christ, crushes the head of the serpent. So we have the woman, we have the, the seed, the child, and we have the serpent. Just like in Revelation 12, we've got a woman, we've got her seed, her child, and we've got the mention of the serpent that's there. Uh, everything is making a full circle in history. When we go back to Genesis, things that happen in Genesis are starting to happen again later. Uh, it's going full circle. We see it over and over again. The things that happened in the past are going to happen in the future. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's troubles. Jacob occurs over here in Genesis. And Jacob as Israel, is, this is what this is all about. It's the, the time of Jacob's troubles. I mean, it just goes all through it. Over here, we've got the devil uh, showing up in the form of a serpent. He shows up in the form of a serpent there. He for, uh, shows up in the form of a seven-headed dragon, but he's called that old serpent over here. Uh, we have over here in the Old Testament, things are going to go full circle. We've got a judgment, and that judgment is in the form of a flood. And God wipes out all civilization with the form of a flood. We saw a beautiful rainbow yesterday, a, a double arch, a double rainbow. And God says, I'm wiping out everything over here. And God wipes out everything over here. But instead of with the flood, he does it with the renovation by fire. So what started over here is going full circle. Uh, we see that God's got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a covenant that he makes with them here. And God's restoring and renewing that covenant 
Those promises that he kept to Israel are going to take place over here. Uh, we find over here, there's, they're in captivity in Egypt. And there in Egypt, they are under persecution by Pharaoh. And it took a deliverer by the name of Moses to get them out of their bondage. And over here, there's going to be great persecution under the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to persecute Israel. And that's what we're reading about in chapter number 12. And just like Pharaoh, God's sending a deliverer and is going to deliver them. We find over here there is the Passover. In fact, all the seven feasts, uh, the Passover feast is going to uh, uh, be played out again here in Revelation. Uh, the first fruits, the unleavened bread, Pentecost, trumpets, the day of atonement, and, uh, the, and tabernacles. It's all going to be played out through history. You can find Passover in history. We find uh, unleavened bread and we get over here to first fruits. That's Jesus rising again from the dead. And then we're going to get the Pentecost and that happened right here. That happened on the day of Pentecost uh, some 2,000 years ago. So the next feast that we're waiting on is the Feast of Trumpets. And the Bible says, at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, will be caught up to be with the Lord. And no wonder we hear all these trumpets are going to sound in Revelation 8 through chapter number 11. And so we're going to be raptured out somewhere around the Feast of Trumpets. And then what follows, follows that is the, uh, the atonement. And then follow, uh, what follows that is the, uh, uh, the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's the Millennial Kingdom. Everything is going to go full circle, just like it happened before, and it goes further than that. It's going to happen all over again. So we see the woman, we see her child, and that's the great discussion is who is the woman, and as we said, it's Israel, uh, and so we're looking at the focus on Israel. Everything tonight is centered on Israel. The church has not been heard of since chapter number four. And the church is not heard of again, the chapter about number 19. So God's not dealing with the church. God dealt with things in the Old Testament with Israel. The church age is just a temporary time between two events of God dealing with Israel. And eventually God's done and he's dealing now with Israel again like he did in Old Testament times, things are going to go, like I said, full circle. History repeats itself. Someone said the only thing men learn from history is that they never learn from history. Israel never learned from history. We never learned from history. And so God's going to put Israel through a test. It's the time of their testing, a time of their trial. He's putting them to the fire to refine them once again as his people. Uh, Genesis 37, verse number 9, if you read that, and we won't go back there, but that clearly tells us that the woman is Israel. Verse number 2, though, when she being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Uh, Israel was the womb of the Messiah. There was something going on a couple weeks ago about, like I mentioned about black Israel, and they're trying to make Jesus to be black and all this nonsense. Jesus is not white. Jesus was not black. As a human being, Jesus was Jewish. He's of the tribe of Judah. Uh, both of his, his earthly mother was Jewish, a Jewish maiden, and his earthly, not biological, but his stepfather, Joseph, was Jewish. He was born in Bethlehem. As I said, he's from the tribe of Judah. Uh, he's of the seed of David. When they saw Jesus, they cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He's of Abraham. He's a, a descendant of Abraham on his earthly side. All the Old Testament authors were Jewish. All the New Testament authors are Jewish. And, and I know there's argument as to one, but I believe they're all Jewish. Old Testament and New. In fact, that's what was said in Romans 3 verse 2. The oracles of God were committed to Israel. To the, not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. Paul said in Romans 1.16 and in Romans 2.10 that salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's all about Israel. Israel was the womb of the Messiah. And so we see that pictured here in the vision that John has of the woman who's with child. Over and over again, God compares uh, the end times, he compares Israel, he compares the church and many of these things to a woman in pain to deliver her child. 
the Bible says that even creation groans in pain to be delivered. Uh, in Romans chapter number 8, it, it groans in pain to be delivered. Like a woman in birthing pains. Uh, the Bible says that the Lord is going to return. Just like a woman in, in pain. Uh, that's going to, uh, leading up to that delivery, uh, is going to be the, the time before the coming of Jesus Christ. Israel bringing forth here the Messiah, the child, is like a woman in pain to deliver. Folks, the world that we're in tonight is compared to this imagery. Uh, for example, and I don't want to embarrass her, Luna. She'll get on to me tonight if I embarrass her. But uh, we just celebrated Susie's 10th birthday. And every time, you know, I think about that. Uh, I think about uh, the nine months that honestly, we, we were kind of blessed. I say we, and I use that term loosely. Uh, Luna had fairly easy pregnancies, uh, especially compared to some of the other stories we heard. Uh, but still, she had good days and bad days, like any woman would have. But for the most part, about seven, eight months or so were, were, were pretty easy going for the most part. She'll correct me when we get home if I'm wrong. But, uh, but anyway, when the time got closer to the delivery, and all of a sudden, I, I remember those Braxton Hicks contractions. They're false contractions. But that doesn't mean it's the time of delivery yet. And I remember when those contractions began to be real contractions and they began to intensify and also become closer together. Then we knew that the time of delivery was getting close. And then there came a time, just like happened 10 years ago, where she said, Ben, we got to get to the hospital. It's time to bring forth the child. And this world that we're in tonight is just like that. Throughout the last 6,000 plus years of history, there's been birthing pains. There's been you know, false contractions. But we're seeing in a world tonight where the contractions are getting not only uh, uh, more powerful and in, intensing, uh, intensifying uh, in, in the, the size of the contractions, but also in the, uh, in the proportion to one another. It's getting closer and closer and closer. Jesus is getting ready to come again soon. And when he comes, it's just like that same picture. There's nothing going to stop it. And the world we're in, that's why we see what we see with plagues and we see viruses and we see, uh, you know, chaos out on the streets and we see violence and we see warfare and all these things. It's all signs pointing to a soon delivery. The Lord's getting ready to deliver the church out of this world. But he's also getting ready to do what he's about to do in the book of Revelation. So we see, although Israel went back in 1948. Uh, the full restoration of Israel is still future. So we can look at this passage tonight and see a past and a future fulfillment. Because Israel brought forth the Messiah 2,000 years ago. And so that's the child. And a lot of people argue the child. I don't see much argument for the child because look at what it says in verse number 5. She brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. That child is unmistakable. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that happened 2,000 years ago, but everything that happened 2,000 years ago can't fit the entire passage. For example, verse 6, the woman fled to the wilderness. Mary didn't flee to the wilderness after she gave birth, and neither did the nation of Israel. They didn't flee to the wilderness. She didn't have a place prepared of God. Uh, Israel didn't go to a place prepared of God 2,000 years ago. She wasn't miraculously fed there 1,203 score days in verse 6, 2,000 years ago. So it seems to have a past and a future application. And a lot of passages, a lot of scriptures do. There's a first advent and a second advent in the same place. That seems to be the indication here. Because Israel went back in 1948. They started to become a nation. Their nation was reborn again. Just like this picture uh, they were born again, but that's not the full restoration of Israel. The, the, uh, the greatest restoration of Israel is still future during the tribulation. Now, they're going back by leaps and bounds. They're going from the north, the south, the east, and the west. In fact, I don't have time to get back into that tonight, but there's even a prophecy in the Old Testament that gives the actual direction that they would go back from their despoir back into their land. Uh, they it said, for example, that they would go back from the east. Well, that's the Middle East. That's the first ones that went in uh, when Israel went back to their land. Uh, it says from the east. Uh, then it says from the west. I believe it was in that order. And that's Europe. 
uh, that's uh, uh, in Germany, in Europe, and other places. That's those that went back. And then it said that they would go back from the south. And the south would be Ethiopia. There's been a, a, a mass migration of Ethiopian Jews that are going back to Israel. And then it says the north, and that's Russia. And they've been going back from Russia into Israel. And they're going back by leaps and bounds. But their greatest restoration is still future. All right, it talks about as well the 12 stars that are there. The 12 stars represent her dominion, Israel's dominion regained and Israel restored. That number 12, we know in the New Testament is connected with the apostles. But it's no doubt this is not a, a Gentile woman. This is not the church that is being born. That happened all the way back here. This is Israel, so the 12 stars has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel that we read so much about in the book of Revelation. So he says there again in verse number 3 that there's a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Uh, we talked about Sunday night that this is represented by an entire chapter in, in the book of Job uh, of Leviathan. Uh, and I, I wanted to bring out another passage uh, there in Psalms chapter 74. If you would look there tonight, Psalms chapter 74. There's no better way to interpret the Bible than with the Bible. You don't need any outside sources. Just look at what the Bible has to say about itself. So look in Psalm 74 in verse number 13. Psalm 74 verse 13. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Now, this isn't the Red Sea, although it sounds like it. This is talking about something better, something deeper than that. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. God didn't break in the head of the dragons in the water of the Red Sea. Uh, and here the Bible retains the word dragon, just like in Revelation. Thou breakest the heads, plural, of the dragons in the waters. But look at verse 14. Thou breakest the heads, plural, of Leviathan, singular, in pieces and gave us him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Folks, God says that he's about to break the heads, there's seven of them, of Leviathan in pieces. He didn't do it in the past. He crushed the head of, Jesus, uh, of, uh, of the serpent, Jesus did, on Calvary in part. The full fulfillment is going to be at the second advent when he's going to defeat Satan finally forever and cast him into a lake of fire. And that's the end of him. Uh, well, he'll burn for all eternity. But he's getting ready to prophetically break the heads of the dragon, break the heads of Leviathan. And it's not a whale, and it's not a hippopotamus, and it's not a crocodile. It is this seven-headed dragon we read about in chapter 12 and verse number 3. And it says that he has there... Seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Now, I know most people don't like history. I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave this up. Let me, let me go ahead and show you this real quick. Here, we know what the seven heads are. This isn't really anything to, to argue over. This is history. These seven heads, although he has seven heads, the seven heads are represented by kingdoms. And these kingdoms are all in the past. When we, I'm going to move the chart in a minute and show you the image of Daniel. Because Daniel's image and the image of the beast and all that he sees parallels what's going on in Revelation. It's just Daniel sees a different vision of the same thing. But it's the same thing. It's just a different type of vision of the same thing. So these seven heads are persecutors of Israel. These are kingdoms. These are uh, kings that have persecuted Israel in the past. Uh, and these are in order. We can, we can track them down. The first one that the Bible mentions, as far as these kings anyway, is Nimrod. And that goes back to the Tower of Babel. Remember where God confounded the languages there. That's the first king. That's one of those seven heads that's prophetically mentioned. The second would be Pharaoh. We all know that story. And Pharaoh's in Egypt. These are seven kings that are prophetically were foretold, would, would historically uh, uh, would attack and, and would persecute the people of God. 
And so God singles these seven kings that are out here. The third one, historically, is a, is a king by the name of Sennacherib. Aren't you glad your name isn't Sennacherib tonight? And that's in Assyria. Now we hear a lot about Syria, but they are connected and there's prophecies about Assyria and Syria even in the future. But you have Nimrod, the first one, Pharaoh, the second one, Sennacherib, the third one. The fourth one, you also have heard this one lots of times. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is also in Babylon. There's a fifth head, because that's what these heads again represent, and that's Darius. And Darius the king, that's over in Daniel chapter 5, verse 28. And that's Media, Persia. The sixth one is uh, Alexander the Great. And we also know that Alexander the Great was in Greece. And that was uh, about 100 BC. And the seventh one is really interesting. Because again, we know who this is. This is Caesar Augustus. And this king, this ruler, would be in Rome. But here's what happens with this seventh one. It goes into kind of a, a mystery form. And we're going to read about that later on in Revelation. And God calls it Mystery Babylon. And in type, we know it's Rome, which Rome was persecuting Israel at the time of Christ. But Rome is going to play a big role, at least the Roman Empire, and not just the seven heads, but what gets into those ten crowns. That's a ten-nation federated kingdom. These are all in the past, historically. I mean, you can date these. Nimrod, I mean, Nimrod was uh, 2400 B.C. That's Genesis chapter 10. Uh, we, we find, of course, Pharaoh in Egypt. We find, uh, you know, we've got... Darius at 330, we've got Alexander the Great at 100 B.C., Caesar Augustus around 346, and all those that are there. But then it becomes kind of, well, let me show you this. I know, here's what I'm going to admit to you tonight, and I don't like to admit this. Because I'm the kind of guy that I'm going to try to convince you that the Bible is a very simplistic book, because it is. And don't let people tell you it's complicated because it's not. But some things you have to dig a little bit. And some things you're going to have to pray about a little bit. Some things you've got to stay a little bit deeper. That's why we talk about the milk of the Word of God and the meat of the Word of God. And so if you want to get into these things, you're going to see how it all plays out. That the last kingdom goes into a mystery form called Mystery Babylon. Uh, and, we, and we're going to see that these heads... And we see that these, uh, these kings play a role in prophecy. Alright, when we go back to Daniel, and you study Daniel, and you compare Daniel with Revelation. Remember, Daniel gets several different images, or visions. The most well-known is what's called often the Colossus. And again, these are all historical things that we know to this point. I mean, there's no really argument over who these places are. Uh, you know, what kingdoms they were. We, we know that the goal was the Babylonian Empire. How do you know that? Because God said it right there in Daniel. He defines it for you. He tells you where it was. This is Babylon. It's a gold head. And this is an image. And remember, there's going to be an image that's going to be worshipped here as well. And so we know that's the Babylonian Empire. Then you get to the silver. And the silver represents the Media Persia uh, Empire. Then you get to this part of his body. And you're going from gold to silver to brass. It's getting from something that's valuable, something that is uh, precious, like a precious metal, to when we get down here, it's just kind of clay. There's nothing really to it. And so these kingdoms are going downhill. They're not going uphill. They're going downhill. 
but they ruled in this way. And you get to the legs of iron. And the legs of iron uh, are divided. Just like you've got two legs. You've got This is the eastern and the western division of the church. Is what most of all tried to, uh, tried to make that represent. And the last part is the feet. So we know that up to this point, this is all historically happened. The toes, just like you've got... Well, I assume everybody's got 10 toes tonight. You might have 11 toes or 8 toes. I don't know. I haven't seen in your shoes. But most of us have 10 toes. And so 10 toes are represented by 10 kingdoms. The 10 toes of the image representing the 10 federated kingdoms that extend over the tribulation. The problem is, historically, we know all of these. And these somewhat correspond to these heads that are there. But he also gets a vision of these creatures. He gets a vision of a lion. He gets a vision of a bear and a ram, a leopard and a he-goat. And he sees this image of a goat that's got extra horns and crown uh, on the horns. And so we see this fourth beast here where God says it's like the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7 verse 7 through 8. And it's all a type of the coming, what the Bible says is the king of the north in Daniel. And it's going to be the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is going to show up right in here, halfway through the tribulation, as the Antichrist. Meaning that he probably is not going to campaign as the Antichrist as soon as the tribulation begins. But at some point here, three and a half years into it, he's going to say, all right, I'm taking charge of Israel. I'm taking charge of the temple. He's going to begin to work wicked things. The image will be set up. The image corresponds to the image and the heads that Daniel saw. Now, this sounds complicated, I know. But when we get to Daniel, I hope it'll make a little bit more sense. Because Daniel goes into great detail about it more than Revelation does. But I'm not going to get into Daniel as soon as we finish this study. We're going to take a break for do something else for a while. But when we get to Daniel, it'll make a whole lot more sense, I promise you. The basic thing is this. When you look back at, this, at these kingdoms here, you find that these kingdoms, three of them stand out. Nimrod, at the beginning, that's the Tower of Babel. That's where the idea of Babylon comes from. At the fourth one, right here in the middle, is Babylon. When you get to the last one, it's Babylon. So again, not only is history repeating itself, but God's telling us in the past, in the middle, and in the future, Babylon is connected with the persecution of God's people and is connected with what God's going to do to Israel and what the devil's going to try to do to the nation of Israel as well. Now, if you look in verse number four, so again, just to be clear, the seven heads, the devil has seven heads, but they are symbolic of seven kings. The, uh, and the seven crowns upon his heads are representative of those kingdoms in the tribulation that are going to make up that federated kingdom that we don't really know who they are yet. Although I do see a lot of nations aligning up tonight that uh, the Bible does tell us will have a role in, in prophecy. So at some point during the tribulation, there's going to be a, uh, a union of ten nations that are going to gather together and those nations are going to go against Israel and align up with the Antichrist under his rule. And verse number four, and it's tell through the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to, to be delivered, and to devour her child as, as soon as it was born. Now, verse number four is kind of peculiar, because everything in Revelation is future. It's not the past. But you come to verse number four, and it sounds like, look at verse, let's, let's jump down to verse seven. There's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. All right, we know the devil had a fall somewhere back here because he shows up in the Garden of Eden already as 
the serpent. He takes on the form of a serpent. Somewhere around the creative week, and I'm not going to get into all of that because I know even in your constitu our Constitution here, uh, it says that there's no talk about, about a, a pre-Adamic earth or anything, but I, I'm just going to tell you tonight that you have the week of creation here, and somewhere around this time, Satan had to fall. And it's not mentioned in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. Satan falls. When Satan falls, he takes a whole lot of angels with him. Now, we know that Satan falls because Jesus says that he beheld Satan fell as lightning from heaven in the Gospels. We also know Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 is the biography of Lucifer. But it doesn't say anything about the angels that fell with him. So people come to Revelation chapter number 12 and they say, well, this is the fall of Lucifer in the past tense, not in the future tense. I disagree. I think it's happened before and I think it's going to happen again. Uh, and I, you know, people, and I, I think the same way. We think how in the world could angels that are in the presence of the Lord and see him in all of his glory fall? How could they they not follow him. Well, angels like you and I are made with the free will. Now, angels are not redeemable like you and I. God didn't die and send his son to die to redeem angels, just mankind. And so the Bible tells us a little bit about fallen angels. We know that around uh, uh, here, there are, right before the flood, there's some mention of some angels that sin. Now, I love my chart. But there are things up here I don't agree with. One of the things I disagree with is this line of Seth and line of Cain argument. And again, it's one of those things where if you believe that, we don't have to lose fellowship. You know, it doesn't mean you're lost or saved if you agree or disagree. I'm just going to tell you, I, I sat through seminary classes. I've been told all this, that the line of Seth and line of Cain is what the Bible means here. And, and there's not a shred of evidence to support that. There's no such thing as a godly line of anybody. There's no godly line, including the line of Jesus Christ wasn't a godly line. He's God, but his line had prostitutes in it. The line of Jesus Christ, go back and read. There's Rahab the harlot and a lot in his, his lineage that weren't really great people, including David, who was a murderer and an adulterer and many others. Uh, in Genesis chapter number 6, it says, turn back there and look real quick. I want to show you a couple of these things. And again, if you don't believe it, that's fine by me. It don't make any real difference to me or not. But I'm going to tell you what I believe about it and what traditionally has been believed about it. But we're looking for some fallen angels in the past. And that's what I'm trying to bring out to you tonight. Look in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 4. Genesis 6 is the chapter about the flood. God says in verse 3, he says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. Uh, verse 4, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in and of the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth and that every imagination of his heart was only evil continually. So the Bible makes a very peculiar statement. And it says there that God saw that the daughters of men. And the sons of God. Came together. And the union of the daughters of men and the sons of God were men of renown. They were giants. So here's the question. People say, well, what does, what the, what does God mean by the daughters of men versus the sons of God? And so somebody says, well, sons of God, that must have been the line of Seth. Seth was a good man. Cain was a not, not a good man. So the... The line of Cain is the daughters of men, and the line of Seth is the sons of God. But sons of God in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is always a reference to angels. The angels are the sons of God. I'll tell you something that just kind of blisters my britches a little bit. All right? 
John 3.16 has been retranslated in all new translations to say something along this line. Well, first of all, let me tell you what the Protestant Bible, the King James says. Uh, you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How many believe that tonight? All right, that's, we believe that. He sent his only begotten son. The new translations remove the word begotten. And they change it to one and only Son. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is not the only Son of God. Now before you think I'm a heretic, think about the wording. Begotten. Elisha is my only begotten Son. He's my only Son of any kind. But he's my only begotten Son. That means he came from me. He came from our union. He's my only begotten son. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He is not the only son of God. Do you know in Genesis it says of Adam, Adam was called the son of God. Adam's the son of God. Do you know God says of Israel, Israel my son. He calls Israel his son. Do you know that, uh, let me show you something. Look over in Job chapter number one. Job chapter number one. Job chapter number 1. And we're going to look in Job chapter number 1 and verse number 6. Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. There was a day, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The sons of God are not Seth and his descendants appearing before God in heaven. Now look in chapter 2 of Job. Chapter 2, verse number 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The sons of God in these references are angels. And God said these angels, apparently, whether it's still ongoing or not, we don't know. But twice in Job, I assume it's still ongoing. It's like a time where the angels have to give an accountability of themselves. Give an account of what they're doing, their actions, and all that they have to do there. The sons of God are angels. All right, look in, um, let me show you uh, another place or two here. Look in Job 38. Since we're still in Job, Job 38. Job chapter 38 and verse number 7. Let's back up to verse number 6. This is the Lord speaking to Job. And he's speaking about his creative act, the week of creation. Look what he says in verse 6. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? That's the, the foundation of the earth. Who laid the cornerstone thereof? So there's a cornerstone on the earth somewhere. We can't see it. NASA can't see it. But God put it there. Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together. And the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, do you know there's not a verse in the Bible that says angels sing? Everybody thinks and assumes angels sing. You say what about those angels in the field when the shepherds were there when Jesus was born? Well actually it says uh, and, and that the angels appeared and they praised God and said, uh, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It doesn't say they sang. It said that they praised and glorified God. Now, that can be singing. But here's one proof text that I think angels do sing, even though I don't ever say angels sing, except for here. It says that the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. That means that there were angels witnessing creation. And when they saw God create the world, the morning stars, a star is an angel, and the sons of God are angels, they shouted for joy. So this is all important because you find in, uh, and we'd be here all night if I get into all of this, but look in Second, Second Peter tonight. Second Peter, the whole context of Second Peter Is about the coming of the Lord. Look in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. 
But there were false prophets also, verse 1, among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. This is all future. Verse number uh, 3, it says that their time lingereth not, their damnation slumbereth not. This is what God's getting ready to do to the world. Verse 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, okay, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, comma, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah. The eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in all the flood upon the world of the ungodly. God says there were angels that sinned around the time of Noah. And those angels are reserved somewhere. Now, we know that this can't be demons. This can't be uh, the, the, the devil's angels in the future because they're free roaming until their destruction. Remember sometime uh, Jesus cast out a demon out of out of uh, a man and, and the, the demon said, uh, torment us not before our time. They know their time of judgment's coming. They know it's coming. But they're able to enter people. That's That goes back to demonic possession and stuff like that. But these angels are reserved, the Bible said, that they're in chains and that, that it happened around the flood. Uh, look in the book of Jude, the little book right before the book of Revelation. I'm going somewhere, so just... Be patient. The little book of Jude. Verse number five. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye uh, once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Verse six. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. So once again, there's angels that sin. Verse 7, here's the clue. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in like, uh, about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God said these angels that sin... Are like Sodom and Gomorrah. They went after strange flesh. Well you go back to Genesis 6. You find the daughters of men. And the sons of God coming together. And it produces a race. That God winds up wiping off all creation. Except for the animals in the ark. And Noah and his family. Now what's that all got to do tonight. With Revelation chapter number 12. Because look what's happening. Verse number 4. The devil's going to take his tail. And. And going to take the stars of heaven and a third of them. He's going to cast them to the earth. Now this isn't just those little twinkly things you see up there in the sky. How do we know that? Because when we get down to verse number 7. We find it's a war that's going on in heaven. And the result of it is Michael. That's the archangel. Kind of the good guys and the bad guys tonight. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fight against the devil, the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels. Well, it can't be the ones reserved and changed because they're fighting here. And prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast that, uh, out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan that deceived the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now here's the point. It happened before. It's going to happen again in the future. Ultimately, he's going to fail and not prevail. But the end result is the devil and his angels, a third of them that are going to follow him, are going to be cast down to the earth. There, what we're reading about in chapter 12 is Star Wars. It's Star Wars. It's a war with stars. And it's extraterrestrial beings. They're angels that are in a warfare and they're going to be cast down to earth. And the world is going to uh, experience uh, uh, an invasion of these fallen angels. And, it's, uh, and that's what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter number 12. History again is going to repeat itself and is getting ready to happen again. Now, can you imagine tonight? 
I know some of y'all looking at me saying, that, that just sounds far-fetched. I'm just telling you what it's saying. It says there's going to be war in heaven. It says Michael and his angels are going to fight the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels are going to lose and going to be cast down the earth. As I speak tonight, there, NASA is doing anything in their power to try to communicate with some life, something out there beyond earth. There are millions of dollars being spent to explore deep space. They, they have hundreds of satellite dishes that are aimed in the deep space and they're beaming out signals constantly trying to communicate radio frequency signals. Uh, almost like a Morse code beeps and, and, and dashes and all these sounds are trying to get out there in hopes that at some point somebody's going to hear something back. One of these days they're going to get their wish. One of these days, they're going to look up there and see something coming out of the sky, and trust me, they're not going to want to see it. And it's not going to be E.T. with a bag of greasy pieces in his hand. It's not going to be some cute little alien. It's going to be the devil and all of his fallen host, and they're coming to make war on this earth, and the, and, and the Antichrist, and the beast, and the false prophet, and all these things that are going to happen are going to happen at the last half of this three and a half years of tribulations. Uh, the nations are going to be affected. It's going to be a ten nation federated kingdom that's going to line up with all of this mess. Until ultimately, the Lord's going to get the victory. And when he gets the victory, Satan's going to be cast eventually into the lake of fire forever and ever. You know, the Bible says in this passage, look down in verse Number nine, boy, you talk about some aliases. That old serpent, that's back in Genesis 3. He said, the devil, that's how we know him tonight, the devil and Satan. He deceived the whole world. But look at verse number 10. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Over in Job chapter number 2, where we are looking a moment ago, do you know why the devil was there appearing with those sons of God? He was there because he's, he's uh, accusing Job before God. Now, I got a message on this, so you're going to hear it preached one day. But you know how the devil accuses us? He accuses God to us. Has he ever done that with you tonight? He said, well, if God was a loving God, would he really let that happen in your life? If God really cared about you, would he allow that to happen? Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses God to us. Do you know he accuses us to God? That's what he did with Job. He said, did you see Job? God said, which he knew uh, Satan was there anyway. He said, hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, a perfect man, an upright one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And, and the devil, here comes his accusation. He said, doth Job fear God for naught? He said, you've hedged him about. You've blessed all that he has. He said, touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your, to your face. He accuses us to God. And right now, according to Revelation 12, verse 10, he's still accusing us. He's the accuser of the brethren. Every time we sin, he's saying, hey, God, did you see Ben did that? Did you hear what he said? Did you know what he did? How come he didn't do that? That's why we've got an advocate in Jesus Christ. That's why he's our attorney. He defends us to God. Every accusation as a believer that Satan takes to God, he takes it to God. And, and Jesus said, it's under the blood. Case closed. Throw it out. He accuses us to God. He accuses us to each other. You know what's killing churches tonight? This one right here. What about so-and-so? Did you know what they did? Did you hear what they said? Can you believe what happened? Well, how dare they? I can't believe they did this. Well, they're trying to take my position. Well, I can't believe that they said that to so-and-so. Our churches are dying from internal conflict, not external conflict. It's inside. It's, it's uh, attacking one another. He accuses us to each other. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. Can you believe that they said that? Can you believe they did that? Can you believe they went there? My goodness, the things I could tell you about this one right here. 
I think back to a, I may have told, told you before, but I think back to, uh, to a man that our church prayed for and prayed and prayed and prayed. I mean, his family, they prayed and prayed and prayed that he'd get back in God's house. And, uh, I mean, they, they prayed every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. He got into some stuff he shouldn't have got into, and they prayed for him every Wednesday night prayer meeting, praying he'd get back right with God. And one day he showed up on a Sunday morning to come to church. Some of us knew that he, he was there and got excited to see him come in. But a couple of ladies saw him come in and they walked around the corner and they started talking to each other. They said, did you see who came in the door? Can you believe he came into our church? I don't want that kind of person in our church. Uh, I hope he don't come back. He's not welcome here. We don't need his kind around here. Well, little did they know, he had walked around the corner and could hear every word they said. That man that we were so excited to come to church, guess what happened to him? He got back in his car, drove off, and to my knowledge, never went back to church a day in his life. He accuses us to each other. And I'll tell you, some of us, we deal with this too. He accuses us to ourselves. You know what our biggest enemy is tonight? Sometimes it's that one right there. And we get kicking ourselves or doubting ourselves or get down on ourselves, or maybe it, it's 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 justified. And we just, you know, it's things that we shouldn't be doing, or things that we should do and we're not doing. And it, he accuses us to ourselves and said, If you were any kind of Christian, how come you would do that? If you were any kind of a Christian, how could you believe that? How could you go there? How, how could you say those things? He's the accuser of the brethren. Now, if the devil's gonna accuse us tonight, I'd much rather him accuse us with lies than have to accuse us with the truth. Amen? But one glorious day, the accuser of the brethren is going to be cast down. And the Bible says we're going to see it happen. And we're going to see him later on in Revelation. The Bible says we're going to see him thrown into a lake of fire forever and ever. And we're going to have front row seats to see that event. And I hope you're on that side to see it all happen. Because we're going to shout and exclaim glory to God for all eternity. Because the accuser of the brethren is finally and ultimately going to be uh, cast down. Verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. So these are tribulation saints. These are saints that are, that are uh, serving God and, and being faithful to God in spite of what's going on during the tribulation. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you. He's coming down. Having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. The devil's already done. He's defeated. The story's been written. But he don't believe it. He thinks he's still got a shot. But his time's getting shorter and shorter. And the closer we're getting to these events, the more he's intensifying his attack. And if you think it's going to get easier, it's not. It's going to get harder. And I'll tell you something else. It's going to get harder to be a faithful Christian in the days that we're living in. It's going to get tough. But keep trusting the Lord and we know we're on the winning side. I'm going to stop there tonight. And I'll say, uh, as far as the, the days, uh, maybe I shouldn't get into this tonight because I'm already past time. But just give me a minute. Um, the, the, the short answer is this. God's word never contradicts. So if, you're, if you ever think that, well, there's a mistake. Go ahead and write that off. God's word doesn't contradict. There is no mistake. There are certain things that God gives us details about and certain things he doesn't. In the book of Daniel, in chapter number 12, verse 11 through verse 13, we start to see a number appear that's around 1,000, I believe, 290 days. All right? So there's a little bit different number of days than in Revelation when we get to Revelation here in chapter 12 and a few other places, we're reading about 1,260 days. So what's the difference in the number of days? And you think, well, you know, just a 30 days uh, doesn't make a big difference. So what, what's the big difference, though? Why would it say 1,290 days, 1,260 days? Um, again, we know the Bible doesn't make a mistake, so that's, that's off no matter what. The truth is there's four dates that are given in Daniel between Daniel and Revelation. 
that seem to be somewhat kind of conflicting. Uh, here's my take on it. Here's what I believe it is. The, the 1,290 days has to do not with the length of time during the tribulation. We know that this is the time that the tribulation is going to take place, and there's no getting around it. It's three and a half years and three and a half years, and so we know that it equals seven years, and those 30 uh, uh, day, month, the year, we know that it comes out to 1,260 days, and you just multiply that times two. And that's the length of the seven years of tribulation. So when you get to this state here, the difference more than likely has to do with the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom that's fixing to take place. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about things such as the temple sacrifices that will be restored. Uh, the Antichrist has to be removed out of the temple during the tribulation. The sacrifice occurs at the middle of the tri uh, tribulation. So that's the last half of the three and a half years or the 1,260 days. The extra 30 days then probably denotes a time frame for the setting up of the millennial kingdom, including the necessary judgments on the Jews and the Gentiles that leads up into the kingdom. Now, if that sounds complicated, you have to understand everything again goes back as full circle. Uh, there is here a tabernacle. There is here a temple. There is here going to be a temple. In the, uh, in the tribulation, that temple is going to be desecrated. It's going to be rebuilt uh, and, and, and restored or cleaned. In the Old Testament, anything that they did with the tabernacle had certain laws. Sometimes it had length of days that are connected with it. For example, if they're making oil for, uh, for the candlestick, they can't just whip it up real quick and throw it in the lamp. They had to wait a certain number of days so that the oil was considered sacred. It was done correctly. So it probably has to do with the, the extra 30 days with the time frame for the setting up of the kingdom. Over Daniel chapter 12, verse number 12 to 13, there's an additional 45 days beyond the 1290 days. And again, that's bringing us into the millennial kingdom on earth. So it's not the tribulation from here to here. It's the tribulation, the last half from here to here, and the extra time God's setting up the 45 days beyond the 1290 days. Uh, real quickly, I'll just say that there in Daniel 9, 27, the seven years are mentioned there. That's divided, you know, in, into two halves. Three and a half years, three and a half years. Think of it like a, a sporting event. You go to a basketball game, there's like a halftime or something. You go to a football game, there's, there's halftime, there's intermission. Uh, you've got half the tribulation. You've got a second half of the tribulation. We know it's going to last this long. We don't know how long before the tribulation begins. Does it happen the moment the rapture takes place? Is it a year later? Is it a month later? Is it a week later? We don't know. But we know once it starts, it has to be this number because God repeats that over and over and over again. Um, if you want to look it up, you can study Daniel 9.27, Daniel 8.14... Uh, Daniel 12, 11, Daniel 12, 12. Uh, but the numbers aren't so much, again, about the 70th week as they are about the second advent and the cleansing of the temple. So those extra days are going to be connected with those events, not just the days between the beginning and the end of the tribulation period. I hope that doesn't make it more complicated. I'm trying to make it simplified. But that's about as best as I know how to break it down in a simple form. All right. Everybody thoroughly confused? We're going to take a test now. So get out your paper and pen. We'll grade it. No, we won't test it. But I, I do appreciate your patience. Some of this stuff I know is a little deep. Some of it's a little complicated. I don't want you to ever think that the Bible is that way. It's just some things you're not going to pick up right away. It may not pick it up in a Bible study like tonight. It may take several days. It may take a month or two. Uh, but you have to study these things out. The Lord will help you with it. He certainly has with me. Um, I saw a book the other day. Well, I take it back. I've seen two. One was learn the Bible in 30 days. Uh, I almost bought it, but I couldn't make myself justify spending the money on something that I know is nuts. 
uh, I'd waste my money. But learn the Bible in 30 days. You're not going to learn the Bible in 30 days. But the one that beats that is learn the Bible in 24 hours. 24 hours. Uh, you can't get through Genesis 1 in 30 days. You can't get through the Bible. But that's our nature. We want things fast and quick. And some of these things take a little time. Certainly chapter 12 takes a little bit longer than some of the other chapters. But they will go quicker. And uh, we'll get through it. At this time, we'll go ahead and close our Bible study out for tonight. And we'll get into our, our time of prayer. So I appreciate anybody that's online that's joined with us. And, uh, and we'll close in prayer in here in just a moment.